Hi, and welcome to Off the Clock with Tompkins Wake. I'm Catherine Bryant, Special Counsel, your host. Join us as we talk about topical issues in law and business. This is the second part of our two-part podcast special into the new Fair Pay Agreements Act. This is the biggest employment law change in decades and has the potential to affect nearly all New Zealand employers. It comes into force this week on 1 December 2022. I'm joined by Daniel Erickson, employment partner at Tompkins Wake. In our first episode, we talked about what fair pay agreements are and who they apply to. Today, we're going to discuss how the bargaining process works for employers. Daniel, in our previous episode, we talked about how unions can apply to MBIE for approval to bargain for a fair pay agreement once they have support from 10% or 1,000 employees in the sector. So what happens once they've got that approval? If MB is satisfied that the application meets the criteria, it has to be publicly notified. And that obligation actually sits with the union. So the union has five days from the date of the approval to notify the public. So it does this by placing uh, the publish the approval on the union website. And it also has to be published in daily newspapers across the country. So it's Auckland, Hamilton, Tauranga, Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin. The union then has an obligation to use its best endeavours to identify and notify all unions that may have members falling within the coverage of the FPA and all employers that may have employees that fall within the coverage. So employers should be keeping their eye on the newspaper if they're in one of the industries that we talked about. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I I think that Alongside that, I would imagine there will be publicity and updates, you know, through organisations covering those employees, you know, Retail NZ, the Hospitality Association, those sorts of things. I, I would imagine there'll be re- regular updates, but also alongside that, yeah, obviously keeping an eye on the, mm. on the There's news. There's certainly been a lot of media coverage of the uh, FPA so far, or yeah. FPA Act, and I imagine that when the first unions are getting approvals, there'll be a similar amount of, you know, national coverage. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully all employers are going to realise. So once the union is starting to notify employers, what do they need to tell them? Well, they need to tell all of those people effectively that bargaining has been initiated. They need to provide details about the process. So I would imagine each union will develop sort of a standard explanation that they'll pass on. How the FPA could affect the employees within those uh, sectors or within that industry. And there has to be an opt-out form that employees can use if they wish to opt out of the coverage of the FPA. Now, interestingly, employers don't have the same option. So employers cannot opt out of the coverage, but individual employees can. Oh, that's interesting. And the other thing is that employers have obligations to um, notify employees if they think they fall within the coverage, don't they? Or provide their details to the unions. That's exactly right. Yeah. So if an employer is notified or sees a notification in the paper, what's the first step for the employer? Well, they need to find out who is going to be representing them in the bargaining. So each side for an FPA has to have a bargaining group. Now, from the union perspective, it should be relatively straightforward. It will be the initiating union, possibly with representatives from other unions that may also have employees falling within that coverage. From the employer side, it's it's a little bit more murky and 
very early on in the piece, Business New Zealand said it, it, it wouldn't be involved as the employer bargaining site. More recently, it's changed its position and it has indicated it, it will get involved, but on a case-by-case basis. So in many cases, there may be a question mark over who actually is going to be the bargaining side for the employer. Because it's not like the employees can just kind of get together and pick one of themselves to yeah. do it, can they? What's the process if they need a representative? Well, they need they need to form a bargaining side. And, and in some cases, there might be, you know, industry associations that can involve, you know, Retail New Zealand, the Hospitality Association, bodies like that. And if there isn't, then, you know, maybe one of those cases where Business New Zealand have said they will come in on a case-by-case basis, they may put their hand up. The Act actually provides for what's called a default bargaining site or a default bargaining organisation. Now, it doesn't actually specify who that is. You know, it's anticipated that there'll be regulations specifying who is approved as a bargaining party. <laughs> but the government's had a bit of trouble finding anyone to step into that role, haven't they? Yeah, and I guess it wasn't helped by Business New Zealand stepping out of the process. Mm. And, and now that they have stepped back in and indicated they will be involved in a case-by-case basis, hopefully that is of assistance. But I, I think there's, it's fair to say there's still a few question marks over who will form the employer bargaining site. And it is significant because if you cannot form an employer bargaining side within three months from the date of initiation, then the union can apply to the authority to effect the employment relations authority to effectively set the terms and conditions of an FPA. Mm. So if you can't find an employer association to be your bargaining party, then you actually lose the ability to bargain, don't you? That's right. And that's yeah. going to be pretty significant for employers. So it is foreseeable that employers across the country could have terms and conditions imposed on them. Without even getting without a chance a say, to negotiate. The, the union takes it to the authority and gets the terms and conditions mm. set. Business New Zealand, its members employ up to about 70% of New Zealand's workforce. So if they do choose to step in, they'll negotiate for all the employers represented in that FPA, not just their members. Is that correct? That's right. That's yeah. right. And And The bargaining team can comprise representatives from different parts of an industry, for example. So, you know, there's scope there to meet, agree on who your bargaining party is going to be and how that's going to work in practice. Mm. So assuming that both sides have managed to find a representative, what happens next? It becomes a bargaining process and it's a matter of meeting, discussing what the terms and conditions will be. And the legislation says that the duty of good faith applies to those discussions. So in the same way that parties to traditional collective bargaining have to treat each other in good faith, the parties in negotiations for a fair process agreement also have to treat each other in good faith. So that's meeting, communicating, responding to proposals, giving reasons if you reject a proposal, and all those usual things, you know, providing relevant information if it's requested. All of those things will apply to the process. One of the key differences for FPAs is there's no ability to go on strike if you're a union or to lock workers out if you're an employer. You cannot do those things in bargaining for an FPA. Oh, wow. So they're taking away sort of the key backup leverage for both parties. So really trying to encourage them to reach an agreement. That's right. And I think that also too, I think there's a recognition that an industry-wide strike or an industry-wide lockout could have significant implications for the country as a whole and the economy. Yeah, I don't think anybody wants to contemplate an industry-wide strike of 
any sector of the Mm. New Zealand uh, workforce. One of the problems that we've heard about the FBA process is that the employers have to work together. So that assumes that they've got the same goals and they want to get the same result. But these are people who are usually in competition with each other, potentially. So why is that going to make the process difficult? I think it's fair to say that may create tension and it may create difficulties on the employer side, that there are different agendas potentially for people coming into that process. The other side of that is if they can't reach agreement and they can't work together to negotiate, they, they run that risk that the Employment Relations Authority will end up imposing it for them. So, you know, there's a, a bit of a... incentive. Yeah, there's a bit of a stick and a carrot there mm. that to try and get the process done in an orderly fashion and to try and reach some agreement because if you don't, somebody else might be making the decision for you. Mm. But it is going to require, you know, potentially competing employers to have to disclose, you know, commercially sensitive information to each other or to their representative. Is that going to put them at risk of breaching the Commerce Act? I don't think so. There, there is an exception in the Commerce Act that relates to agreements around uh, remuneration, terms and conditions of employment and so on. And that it hasn't typically been an issue in collective negotiations, even where there's been negotiations from multi-employer collective agreements. So the fair pay legislation doesn't specifically address the points, but I would imagine that that exception in the Commerce Act will continue to apply. And that, in fact, was the advice that MB gave the minister while the, the legislation was being developed. Well, that's a relief for employers, at least, that they don't have to uh, worry about the Commerce Act. So if negotiations go well and they take the carrot rather than the stick approach and can agree on some minimum terms and conditions, what will be the next step there when we've reached agreement? Well, firstly, the the proposed agreement has to be submitted to the Employment Relations Authority to approve that it complies with the Act. And that should be a box-ticking exercise, just double-checking that everything that's required by the legislation is in the document. Then it has to be ratified by both sides, and that just means it's a simple majority. So on the union side, it's 50% plus one of the employees that will fall within the coverage On the employer side, it's slightly more difficult because the votes do split up depending on size. So a larger employer on the employer side will have a bigger say in terms of that ratification process. And that allocation of voting rights where bigger employers have more votes than smaller employers, that's one of the key concerns with the fair payment agreement process, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's fair to say, yeah. The concern is that the bigger employers have more resources, so they they will get a lot more say in that process. And the smaller employees may feel a little bit left out, yet they will still be stuck with the end result because the FPA will apply to any employee whose work involves 25% or more of the type of work covered by the collective, Mm. sorry, the FPA. And there's potentially kind of a a two-hit for those smaller employers because firstly, they're going to have fewer resources to kind of have input into that bargaining stage, but then they also have fewer votes at the ratification stage. So there's a very real risk that they're going to be bound by terms and conditions that, um, they really had no say into. Yeah, that's right. And that's, as this plays out, and as we see more of these agreements work, you know, we may see examples of of that happening and the risk coming to pass, or we may 
take some lessons as to how we can address that and, and make sure those smaller employers are not left out of the process. Mm. And when you think about the fact that, you know, smaller, medium businesses are 97% of the businesses in mm. New Zealand, yep. but they only employ 30% of employees, that's mm. obviously, you know, something we're really going to have to look at as this process goes through. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of small businesses might be feeling a bit worried about fair pay agreements. So what happens if the two sides can't agree on the terms or they agree on the terms, but their members vote against it? You said that the Employment Relations Authority then gets to set the terms? Yeah, that's right. So the parties can refer the matter to the Employment Relations Authority for a determination and the authority can then fix the terms and conditions. And it can fix the things that must be in there, but it can also fix and decide to put in the must-discuss items. In the first podcast, we talked about both of those things. And, you know, it can actually put them both in there, Employment Relations Authority. So there is a threshold, though. So firstly, there, there has to have been at least two, possibly more unsuccessful attempts to ratify the FPA or all of the other options for resolution have been exhausted. So that includes meetings, attending mediation, essentially exhausting all the other alternatives. Or there's been the use of reasonable endeavours over a reasonable time. Or there's allegations of a breach of the duty of good faith. That breach, though, has to be deliberate, sustained and serious, or it's undermined the bargaining process. So there's a number of tests there that the authority can comply uh, sorry, apply, that will open the gate for it to then go before the authority for fixing the terms and conditions of an FPA. All right. So if the authority decides that, you know, they've met the conditions and it can fix the terms, does it have to take anything into account when it does fix those terms? Yeah, there's a few things the authority is required to consider. And it has to look at, firstly, what what is the content of the proposed FPA? So what options have been discussed and possibly included already? What are the usual industrial or organisational practices within that particular coverage? That would require, I guess, evidence of what's happening on a day-to-day level in those various workplaces. Has to take into account the possible impact on employers. So that includes the financial impact of the proposed wages. What's already in place, it has to consider. So if there's any collective agreements in place in that sector, what's in those? And what are the applicable minimum employment standards? So Minimum Wage Act obviously applies, but are there any other industry-specific requirements? It needs to look at how easily the fair pay agreement can be understood. So is it a user-friendly document that people are going to be able to work with? And must also look at the potential impacts on the economy and society. So, I mean, that's quite a broad criteria. So it can, you know, look at the extent to which you know failure to reach agreement might impact beyond those particular workers. You know, what's the particular work involved? How important is it to society as a whole that that work is done? That's sort of the minimum things the authority can consider. There isn't any limit on it. I mean, it can consider any other matters it thinks relevant. And will each side get a chance to make submissions to the Employment Relations Authority as to what they should think it should be, or will the authority just look at what they've talked about already? Both sides should get a say, and they'll be able to call evidence, make submissions, all of those sorts of things before the authority makes its determination. Could be looking at some pretty intensive hearings 
if there are both sides are going to be calling evidence? It will be, and, and the Act requires the authority to establish a special structure where it has three authority members sitting in these matters rather than the usual one. I guess that is to provide an additional safeguard that it's not just one person who's going to be making a decision. Mm, and definitely provides an extra incentive for uh, both sides to reach an agreement, yeah, doesn't that's it? Right. Because yeah. that's going to be a very involved process. Yes, it will be, and obviously costly. Yes. So once a fair pay agreement is in place, whether through negotiation or because the authority has imposed it, can employers only hire employees on the terms set out in the fair pay agreement? Well, we need to be reminded the fair pay agreement just sets the minimum, the minimum standards. So you have to apply those, but you can be more generous. So, for example, the FPA will specify minimum wage rates. There's nothing at all preventing employers from offering more to all or some of their workforce, and that, that can be agreed separately with the workers that are involved. Okay. And what if an employee is on an individual employment agreement and it's better than this, you know, the minimum terms in the uh, fair pay agreement? Do they get downgraded to the fair pay agreement? No. So if any existing terms and conditions that are more favourable will continue to apply. So no employee should go backwards (laughs) as a result of, of an FPA. That would be completely contrary to the intention of the legislation they will continue where it is more generous, they'll continue to apply. You're right. So you get the best part of each agreement pretty yeah, much. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, Daniel, I think it's fair to say that the fair pay agreements is going to be like a massive change for New Zealand. And there is a lot for employers to get their head around. But the government's only given employers a month between the act passing and coming into effect, which is quite unusual for such a big change. What's the rush here? Part of the answer possibly is that none of this will come as a surprise. It was Labour Party policy going into the election. There has been quite an extensive process of consultation around the design of the bill itself and the FPA process. Um, Having said that, you know, the actual, as you say, it's a short time frame from the Act being passed and the framework kicking off on the 1st of December You know, the National Party have said if they are in government after the next election, they'll repeal it. It's possible that what the government is hoping is that there will be sufficient numbers of FPAs either in place or in train by the next election that if there is a change in government, it's a little bit more difficult to repeal it and to unwind everything. I'm speculating on that. That's just, you know, one possible theory around it. Because we've certainly seen, you know, there have been a number of articles talking about employers hoping to wait and see if National gets in, that maybe they can kind of dodge this and not have to go through the process. But it sounds like everyone's still going to need to understand this process just in case, because even if National gets in, it's possible that this could be bedded in too much to make it tricky to repeal. So what should employers be doing to prepare for fair pay agreements? I think one of the first things they, they should do is just get their heads around whether they work in an industry where it's likely the FPAs will be initiated earlier. We talked previously about commercial cleaners, supermarket workers, bus drivers. They're probably some of the examples of the ones that are first first cabs off the rank. There, there may well be others. But firstly, just you know, getting your head around, is it likely that it's going to happen in the near future? 
it wouldn't be a good idea just to sit back and do nothing in the hope that this all goes away because who knows what the result in the election will be and who knows if there is a change in government whether it will actually be repealed or not. You know, there are people out there that want to educate themselves about this process and I think that's a really good thing and that's why we, you know, we'll be running some workshops in February of next year where we'll be discussing the FPA process and we'll um, have some expert speakers to come in and help people understand, you know, what the implications for these changes might be for them. Mm, and focusing on practical guidance for employers on yeah, you know, how to navigate this process. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks, Daniel. I, I think there's going to be high demand for that one. In the meantime, anyone who's interested can check out the Fair Pay Agreement articles on the Tompkins Wake website, and you can also express your interest if you want to sign up for one of those workshops. If the uh, Fair Pay Agreement legislation survives the 2023 election, I think we're really going to see a, a fundamental shift in New Zealand's employment landscape. So, Daniel, thank you for joining me to tell employers all about it. No problem. Thank you. And thank you, everybody. We're off the clock. <laughs>